Thank you, Kim Rash. Good morning, church family. It's good to see brothers and sisters gathered uh, to praise our Father, to praise the Son uh, and uh, the Spirit. Now, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, one of the ways that, uh, that we worship here as a church family is in connecting with one another, connecting out in the foyer before and after, sharing a coffee uh, together, also sharing prayer requests. Some of us are in a small group and we're praying for one another regularly. Uh, we also want to make available our pastoral staff and our elders to pray for you as well. So you can scan the QR code or just hop on uh, the app or onto our website. You can leave us a prayer request. Let us know that you're here. If, you're, if you'd prefer to do that on paper, there's some paper cards uh, in front of you that you can drop off in one of the boxes. Also, if you're brand new, there's a visitor card there for you. We have a gift for you that we'd love to give you uh, at the Welcome Center straight through those, uh, those center doors. Also, giving is a part of worship and the app or the paper envelopes and the box at the back are all available for you to be able to, uh, to give uh, in that way. Now, in coming to church, at some point, uh, you had to decide what you were going to wear to church. Uh, for some of us, you knew like last week when you put your, the clothes you wore last Sunday into the laundry, you already knew what you were going to wear this Sunday. Others of you, it was like five minutes before you got into your car. Uh, some of us, like me, need like c consulting on a, on a regular basis. I'm colorblind and so I have, I have a browns and grays and blues and so I'm pretty safe. And, uh, but uh, I need a lot of help in making sure that, that what I'm wearing will, will not somehow embarrass me in some way a shape or form. Uh, chances are, in choosing what you wore to church today, your sex and your gender played a role in deciding what to wear. In, in our closet, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's my side of the closet, and there is Lindsay's side of the closet. Now, there may be some things in the closet that is on Lindsay's side or on my side, that Lindsay could wear something from my side or I could wear something from Lindsay's side. There are some things, but then there are other things that would, it, it, it would be quite odd or quite strange if I were to wear something from Lindsay's side of the closet. We, we, whether we consciously think about it or not, who we are as male or female determines what we choose to wear. Uh, Paul is very concerned about clothing uh, in the church of Corinth. What was being worn and what wasn't being worn. We're, we're starting a, a new part, a new section in the book of 1 Corinthians. Here's the ground that we've covered so far. Chapters 1 through 4, Paul was dealing with the issue of wisdom and the spirit and the wisdom of this world. He was talking about leadership and divisions within the church about leadership. I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. They were divided into these groups. And then he started talking to them about uh, sexuality and marriage and singleness. There was sexual immorality. People were sleeping with prostitutes. A man was, was, was sleeping with his, with his stepmother. They had questions about marriage and about singleness. And he was addressing all of those things. And then this uh, last week we finished off a long section about food being sacrificed to idol, idols. Which in Paul's mind was just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how different brothers and sisters in Christ were relating to one another and caring for people who didn't see eye to eye with them. And then now in chapters 11 through 14, Paul is going to be talking about the worship services at the church at Corinth. 
Now, the church at Corinth thought their worship services were amazing. They had people speaking in tongues and prophesying. They had all of these gifted speakers who were giving these beautiful orations. And they thought there was nothing that needed to change. They, in fact, thought that all the other churches needed to become like the church at Corinth. But now Paul is going to spend chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 correcting ways in which they've gone wrong in terms of how they worship. Now to start off, Paul is going to talk to them about what they wear to worship. Later on, he's going to talk to them about when they eat, when they celebrate the Lord's Supper. Then he's going to talk to them about spiritual gifts and how that relates to love and building one another up. But the title for today's message is Honoring Our Head. Paul is concerned about what is being worn on the heads of men and women while they gathered in church. Now that probably didn't cross your mind as you got ready this morning to come to Hope Church. But it was a big deal in Corinth. Now as we dive into this passage, we need to understand something about the culture in the Roman world and even going back into the ancient Near East. And what do I mean by culture? Culture is what makes you feel like a stranger in certain contexts. Nations have cultures. Linguistic groups have cultures. We all know what it's like to be living in a different culture, whether it be temporarily or permanently. We don't pick up on all of the cues, all of the subtleties, all of the inside jokes, all of the inflections of the voice or the baubles of the shaking of the head or whatever it may be. There's elements of culture that we don't understand. Linguistic groups and nations have cultures, but there's also sport culture. There's a culture around baseball, you know, the left, lefty against a righty or, or, or batting average or, or this or that or playing the shift or a pinch, a pinch hitter. All of these things that people who know baseball people who are a part of the culture, they just use these terms without, they don't have to explain what they mean. But someone who doesn't know baseball, they feel lost. Music is a culture, right? You hear major fourths and minor thirds and a crescendo and a forte and you're like, I used to drive a Kia. (laughs) There's a a culture within Within music, there's a culture about cars. You know, I gotta, I gotta take apart the front end and you know, the timing belt and the radiator, the carb- carburetor and the, the, and you can feel lost in car culture. Now, Paul here is writing in the context of a culture to a group of people that far, in, in, in all ways, in all ways, shape and form really are part of the same culture as he is. And so there is a lot that is being assumed. There is a lot that doesn't need to be explained as Paul is writing it to the church at Corinth. Things about marriage, things about clothing, things about sexuality, things about gender. Paul simply doesn't explain it because it's assumed they were part of the same culture. They spoke the same language. They understood the subtleties and the idiosyncrasies of their particular culture. But unfortunately for us... We're standing on the outside. We're listening in on a conversation between Paul and the church at Corinth. And there's some stuff that is just going to go right over our heads. But thankfully, everything that Paul shares is not merely cultural. The application that he's speaking specifically to the church at Corinth is a cultural application. But the foundation 
behind what he's saying, he talks about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, just like we sung about, the triune God, three in one. We can understand that as Christians. He talks about the creation story, Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, and Adam and Eve. We know that story. And he talks about nature itself, just, just the world around us and what it means to be male and female. We can understand that as well. So we have our work cut out for us if we're going to understand uh, this passage and, and figure out ways that we, that how we can apply this passage in our culture and in our time. So let's pray for the Holy Spirit to, to help us as we uh, dive in here. So Heavenly Father, we ask in the name of your Son, Lord, that your Spirit would open our eyes to see glorious things from your law. That your Spirit, Lord, would fill me in this moment. Lord, control my mind, control my mouth. Allow me to speak that which would build up the church, Lord. Fill all of us, Lord, with, with, a, with a sense of expectancy that you love your church and that you want to speak to your people, both individually and corporately. And Lord, be with our minds. Help us to think clearly and then help us to think rightly about what this passage says to us today. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Paul begins in verse 2. He says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Paul says, thanks for remembering me. Thanks for writing me this letter. Thanks for asking all of these questions. And thanks for maintaining the traditions that I passed down to you. But Paul's going to say, but I'm concerned about what you're wearing or what you're not wearing while you're carrying on these traditions. He goes on in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So Paul is concerned that, that there were women in the church who were praying, who were prophesying, who were participating in the service, but were doing so with their head uncovered. Now, what, what does he mean by the, the head being uncovered? We'll, we'll get to that a, a little bit later, but I, I want us to note where Paul begins in trying to understand and communicate the foundation behind what he's telling them to do culturally is, first and foremost, it's the Trinity, he talks about Christ having the Father as his head. So if you're taking notes today, just jot this down. Paul, Paul talks about the Trinity, talking about equality, authority, and love. Equality, authority, and love. In verse 3, he says, the head of every man is Christ. And we all can agree with that. And it's true, it's not just men. And Paul may be speaking here on a universal terms, in terms of mankind, that, that Christ is the head of, of every person. He's the head of the church. He's our king. We do what he says. He's the head. He has the authority over us. He's also the head of all of humankind. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, that he's the head, that he's the one who belongs in the position of authority. So we all follow along with that, of course. The head of every man is Christ. 
Now where the church has stumbled over um, uh, this, this next verse, uh, because, of, because of the rise of the multiple different waves of, of feminism, some of those waves containing things that were very good and some of those things containing things that were very troubling, but the church over the last uh, half century or so has stumbled over what it says next. It says the head of a wife is her husband. That, that a man and a wife, and in the context of marriage, that there is an authority that is there, that you can draw a parallel between Christ's authority over humankind or Christ's authority over the church, that there's a parallel there between the way a husband and a wife are supposed to relate to one another. Hasn't been a very popular thing to teach in the last 50 or 60 years, but that's what God's word teaches And then he says, the head of Christ is God. Now, isn't Christ God? How how could Christ possibly have as his head the Father? When when, when Christ is himself equal with the Father. Well, that's exactly what Paul is getting at. Notice that he uses the term Christ. He doesn't talk about the Son. He talks about Christ. He's talking about the incarnate Christ. Christ, the Son of God who came to earth on a mission. Now remember in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, Jesus said, or sorry, in John chapter 1, the narrator describes it. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's equal with the Father. But then Jesus said in other places that I've come, I've come to do the will of my Father. He came to submit, even though he's equal with the Father, equal in essence, He came as the incarnate Christ to do the will of the Father. Jesus also said in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But then he also said, I'm going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. There was a sense in which Jesus was submitting to the Father as the incarnate Christ. Now, for theology nerds, what Paul is getting at here is the economic trinity, not the imminent trinity. The imminent trinity describes how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to one another in eternity past, for all time. That's the imminent trinity. That the Father begets the Son, the the Spirit is spirited from the Father and the Son. That's describing how they relate to each other in all of eternity. The economic trinity is how God got things done. And, and, and the rescue mission that Christ was sent on. So Christ, when he's incarnate, submitted to the Father. Temporarily submitted to the Father's will. Listen, Jesus has never been inferior to the Father in essence. Whether it was before the incarnation, during the incarnation, or even now as in his resurrected glory. Jesus has never been inferior to the Father. But in his incarnation, he willingly submitted to the Father in his role as redeemer. So why does all of this matter? Because Paul is laying out a a parallel here. That husband and wife relate to one another in a way that is somehow parallel to Christ and man. And and somehow parallel to the Father and the Spirit. So now, just as Christ, just as the Son of God is equal to the Father in every way. Equal in essence, equal in glory, equal in beauty, equal in divinity. All of those things are shared A woman is equal to a man in dignity, in worth, in value, in significance, in ability, 
And yet, just as Christ on earth submitted to the will of his father, a wife on earth, remember, marriage is temporary. We won't be married in heaven. We won't be married in the new heavens and the new earth. A wife on earth can temporarily submit to the authority of her husband. It's interesting, in Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking about marriage, he uses Jesus as an example for the husband to follow. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. People get the wrong idea about what the Bible teaches about being a husband and being a wife, that somehow husbands get put up on a pedestal. Paul doesn't put a husband on a pedestal, he puts him on a cross. Paul says, if you want to lead as a husband, you lead in such a way that you love your wife to death and that you serve and that you sacrifice. And in the same way that the church submits to Christ in light of his sacrifice, the wife submits to her husband. So Ephesians 5, Jesus is the example for the husband. In 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus is the example for the wife. That Jesus, although he was in the form of God and didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, chose to take the position of a servant, chose to follow the lead of the father. But the, the trouble is, if you press the analogy too far, it starts to fall apart. The father and Christ, the father and the son, they're, they, they're of one essence, they share the same will. They've never disagreed on anything ever. Husband and wife? <laughs> Not so much. So if you press the analogy too far, you end up breaking up the unity of the Trinity. Uh, furthermore, Christ's authority over man is very different from man's authority over his wife. Because Christ's authority over man is infallible. It needs to be followed at, at every single situation in time because it's Christ. Where a husband is not infallible. Husbands make mistakes. Husbands still sin. And so the parallels are not perfect. I love the way Dr. Tom Schreiner summarizes this passage. He says, Jesus is the God-man. And as the eternal son of God, he shares every attribute that belongs to the father. Yet, as the eternal son voluntarily and gladly submits to the father. So too, the different role for women in the church does not call into question the essential dignity, value, and worth of women, just as Christ's functional submission does not contradict his essential unity with the Father. So how do we keep the analogy from being pressed too far? What is it that holds together the fact that Christ has a head who's the Father and that Man has a head who is Christ and that the wife has a head who is husband. What is holding the headship analogy together? It's this. What holds the analogy together is love. The father has always loved the son. The son has always loved the father. I mean, that's, that's at the core of Christianity is that God is a loving God because God exists three in one. There's always been love. There's always been someone to love. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you can't believe in a God who is love because there, there would have been a time in which there was no one for that God to love in the first place. But in all of eternity, there was Father, Son, and Spirit. There was always love. And let's get that diagram back on, this, back on the screen. And Christ's love for man. He loves, he loved humankind for God so loved the world. And we love Christ. That's why we submit. And the authority, the headship within a marriage is supposed to be rooted on love. 
Not because I said so, but because I love you. That is what holds the analogy together. This idea of headship is held together by love. Now, what is, how does head coverings tie into all of this? Verse four says, every man who prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered dishonors her head. Now, when we first read that, when we read verse four in its isolation, we think if a man prays with his head covered, he dishonors his head. And if a woman prays with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. But look back at verse three. The head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. So every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors not his head. There is an element in which it's a shameful thing. I'll get into that. To cover his head, but not his head, but his head. Because his head is Christ. And the wife who prays with her head uncovered, she doesn't just dishonor her physical head, but her spiritual head in her husband. So you could, you could read this passage in this way. Look at verse four. In, in light of verse three, every man who prays and prophesies with his, head uncover, with his head covered dishonors Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her husband. Now Paul begins with an absurd, with an absurd example. There were no men who were praying in Corinth with their head covered. Because that would have been a sh- it would have been an embarrassing thing. It would have been a shameful thing for the man to do. That in all Roman literature, in all Roman art, that anytime you see someone with their head covered, it's because they're a defeated enemy or someone who is being pounded with shame and guilt. Picture, picture when some celebrity or, or some person is found is, is being charged with a heinous crime. And you know the scene. The media's all out there with their cameras and the person gets out of the car and they got sunglasses on. And what do they do? They cover their head. They take their jacket, right, or whatever they have. And they, 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 because they're ashamed of what they've done or what they're being accused of. It's a sense of shame. Naaman, in the book of Esther, when things really started to go downhill for Naaman, it says that he covered his head. This sense of shame. Paul says a man would never go to church and cover his head. It would be dishonoring to Christ because Christ has removed our shame. Christ has forgiven our sin. And we have victory in him because of the cross. And so men pray with their head uncovered. They they don't put on a sign of shame. So Paul says, listen, if, if a man hypothetically were to pray in church with his head covered, that would dishonor Christ. It would dishonor the whole gospel. But he says, but if, if a woman prays with her head, notice, notice how different men and women are. All throughout this passage, it's like men like this, women like this, men like this, women like this. Notice, it's the same thing. An uncovered head for a man is shameful. It dishonors Christ. Sorry. A covered head for a man is shameful, dishonors Christ. But an uncovered head for a woman is shameful. Men and women are so different that if you apply the same thing, if a man covers his head, it's a bad thing. If a woman covers her head, it's a good thing. That's how different men and women are. We live in a world that's trying to blur the differences between men and women. But notice how different it is. Now, again, if a woman prays with her head covered, she dishon- sorry, with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. She dishonors her 
husband. Now, what does it mean? What does this, what's this head covering idea all about? Uh, in Greek, the three words for, for a head covered or head uncovered are the Greek words kata, kephalus, ekon. Ekon means to have, kephalus means head, kata means down, like catastrophe, things went really downhill. Kata means down. So the literal translation is having down from the head. Now some people, in light of what it says in verse 14 about the women having their hair as a covering, but it's a different word, believe that what's being described here is if men pray with their hair down, uncovered, that's a disgrace, and women are supposed to pray with their hair covering, sort of gathered up in a bun that they're not supposed to let their hair down. I believe he's talking about an actual physical veil because of the contrast between men and women. Some men, my, I in particular, I, there's no opportunity for me to have my hair go down. I guess I could grow it really long out of the sides like Hulk Hogan. Paul here is, so I think he's talking about a physical, now people would disagree with us and this is not a major issue to, to, to really split hairs over. The idea here is there's some sort of cultural symbolism in what you have on your head, whether it's hair or whether it's a veil. So what is being described here? Well, we get help from a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, a Stoic a philosopher and, and a Roman historian named Plutarch. Okay, not Hunger Games, but the Roman Empire. Uh, Plutarch uh, uh, makes reference to this. He says, it is more usual for women to go forth in public with their head covered and men with their heads uncovered. In Roman culture... To have your head covered was a way to say, I'm taken. I'm not available. If, if you're unmarried, it's like, talk to my older brother or talk to my father, okay? I'm not, I'm not available to your romantic advances. If you are married, you wear something over your head or you wear your hair in a certain way to say, I'm taken. I'm with him. I'm married. Now, there were some women in Corinth who were saying, well, we're free in Christ, and I'm not saved by whether or not I have my head covered or uncovered. And remember, Corinth was pretty mixed up in terms of marriage and sexuality, right? You got some people who were going to the prostitutes before church. You've got other people who thought sex was somehow dirty, married couples who weren't being sexually intimate with one another anymore. So there was a lot of mixed up perspective. And so there were some women who were saying, I don't, I'm married to Christ. And I don't need to wear this head covering anymore. And so when I go to church or when I pray or when I prophesy, I'm going to have my head cover, uh, uncovered. Everyone knows that I love my husband. Everyone knows that I'm going to be faithful. I don't need this cultural symbol. But look at verse 5. It says that when she does that, she disgraces or dishonors her head. She dishonors her husband. Because what she's doing culturally, again, it's just a symbol no words are being spoken, but what she's doing in the way that she's wearing her hair or choosing not to cover her head is she's saying, I am open to romantic advances. And that would be shameful, even though she's exercising her freedom. Being a Christian isn't defined by what you put on your head or don't put on your head. But how we exercise our freedom always needs to be wardened by our relational responsibilities. Yes, you can eat whatever food you want and food is neutral, just stay out of the temple. But before you dig in and eat, just be mindful of who else is there. 
In the same way, women, of course, sure, take off your, your veil, let your hair down. It doesn't matter. But be mindful of how that would portray your marriage relationship and how you're relating to your husband. To have a head uncovered was to suggest that you're open to romantic advances. So we need to ask ourselves, when we choose to get dressed, we need to not just think about our own personal decisions and how we want to express ourselves or what we like. And we have so many choices in how we get dressed in our culture today. But we need to keep in mind, is what I'm wearing creating a distraction for other people? Are other people somehow no longer focused on the point to the meeting, the prayer and the prophecy and the preaching? Or is, are they now looking at me? And is what I'm wearing somehow suggestive that I'm open to something that I'm not open to? Because our, our clothes speak. Our clothes communicate a message. And it's different in our culture than it was in Paul's. But these are things that we need to pay attention to. And are the clothes that I'm choosing to wear, is it honoring to God as my head? And is it also honoring to the other key relationships. The, the women in Corinth had lost sight of how they need to honor their husbands or honor their fathers or their older brothers who were looking out for them in a world that in many ways was so hostile and unsafe for women. So Paul begins by talking about the Trinity he emphasizes the equality of men and women, the authority within a, a marital relationship, and then also the love that exists therein. Then he moves from talking about the Trinity to talking about creation. Look with me at verse 7. It says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Paul says that, that men don't, don't cover their heads because, because, of, because they have no shame in the fact that they've been created in the, in the image of God. For a man, head covering is a shameful thing, but for a woman, it's not. He says that men are created in the image of God. And, and, and this clearly applies to men and women. Look at the original story in Genesis chapter 1, and, and Paul knew this, and the Corinthians knew this. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So masculinity and femininity, male and female, was right there in reflecting the image of God. Notice when it says that the, the woman is the glory of man. It doesn't say that the woman is the image of man, just the glory that there is a way that men relate to God, all humankind, and there is a way that women are to relate to their husbands. There's an honor, there's a respect. There, there's, a, there's a depth of love and affection and loyalty that is supposed to be communicated in the marriage relationship. Paul explains why. He explains how is it that the wife somehow, just the, the wife's very presence is, is a blessing, is a sense of honor to, to the husband. Look at verse 8. Paul says, For a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Again, he's just retelling the creation story. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, the first surgery ever. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Paul says that the man wasn't made from woman. Woman came from the man. 
And then he goes on in verse nine, he says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Again, he's retelling the story, Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God took one look at Adam and said, this guy needs help. He looked at me and said, Ted needs help. He needs a helper. Now, he didn't say he needs a servant or a maid. This is the same word that's used to describe how God helps his people. If you need help with your geography homework, you, you don't go to someone who knows less about geography than you. You go to someone who knows more. There's a sense of complementarity that women are strong in areas where men are weak and men are strong in areas where women are weak and they help one another. But there is a special dignity and glory that is given to the woman in the role of a helper, a role that God himself plays for his people. Now, God is not inferior to his people. And if God can serve as a helper, how much more can a woman who is equal to her husband joyfully take on the role of a helper? I love how Matthew Henry sums all of this up. Take a look at that hairdo. Talk about a head covering. The woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of, out of his feet to be trampled upon, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Amen. That is what Paul is retelling here. Then it says in verse 10, in light of God's created order, in light of the fact that man was created first, in light of the fact that the woman was created from the man, in light of the fact that if you read the detail of the Genesis story, when Adam lays eyes on Eve for the first time, he says, oh, here's an inferior being. No, he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He immediately asserts their equality. Also notice that in the Genesis story, Adam was the one who was given the instruction about the trees. What to eat and what not to eat from. Not Eve. Also notice that although Eve was the first one to eat the fruit, who did God come looking for in the garden? Adam. Who had to give an account for what happened in his family? Adam. There was an authority. There was a headship. There was a sense of responsibility on the man. And in light of that, Paul says, so in view of this, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. It's a symbol. The foundational truth is rooted in creation. The cultural application is this symbol on the woman's head. You know, a, a number of years ago when uh, Lindsay and I were at Hope Bible Church in Oakville, it used to be called Harvest Bible Chapel, uh, Pastor Chris and his wife Lisa were living down in Louisville, Kentucky. And Janae, you were like, a year and a half at this time. And Lindsay and I went down to Louisville and I was studying at Heritage, but they gave me permission to take some courses at the Southern Seminary where Chris was going. And uh, so we spent some time with the Shipleys and got to know some other people from the church there. And I was taking these crash courses. I was in school from like, it felt like eight in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. They were crazy. The academic, was, the academic aspect was so rigorous. 
And Lindsay, she spent you know, a day or two with Lisa or spent a day or two with some other great families in the church. And then one day she just decided, I'm just gonna go to the seminary. It's a beautiful grounds and it's just a, a nice campus. And the weather was, was so nice. It was January here, but it felt like April down in, uh, down in Kentucky. And so she, uh, she got her Bible and some books and, uh, and she just you know, set up in the library and she set up in the cafeteria. But she found that everywhere she went, she kept getting interrupted. See, there's a lot of men who go to seminary who want to become pastors. There's a lot of single men who go to seminary who want to become pastors, and they'd love to have a beautiful wife to accompany them in their ministry. And they would see this beautiful young woman uh, sitting there reading her Bible, and they, so they would you know, come and, and, and start chatting her up a little bit. And then eventually, Lindsay would just kind of like, do, do this. And she told me that it got to the point where she was like head down, Bible open, and just like this. Just communicating, I'm taken. And so Paul says, and this is our symbol, isn't it? In our culture, this is our symbol of taken. Different cultures have different symbols of of what it means to be married, what it means to be single. Different ways that we, without words, we communicate it to the broader culture. Paul says, in light of Genesis, in light of the Trinity, there, there are symbols that we use to communicate these things. Now that's clear. What Paul says next is not clear. Here he goes again with the angel stuff. He did it a couple of times earlier. He said, oh, because of the angel. What does that mean? What does it mean because of the angels there in verse 10? Well, think about who is present when we worship. I, one of my favorite passages is Hebrews chapter 12, which describes what is happening, not just physically, but what is happening spiritually. Every time the church comes together to worship, Hebrews chapter 12, this is why Hebrews says, don't, don't be in the habit of not fellowshipping with one another. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. The people that he's writing to were far from Jerusalem. But he said, you've come there in a heavenly sense, in a spiritual sense. And he says, in innumerable angels in festal gathering. The angels are present with us and they're in festal gathering. They know know what to wear to church. They're properly attired. Then it says, and the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, that's us, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, the great cloud of witnesses, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, that when we worship, angels are present. And a a wife should be really careful before she removes the symbol, before she removes the covering in terms of how she relates to her husband who has some sort of authority over her. Remember, in Isaiah chapter six, remember how the, how the angelic beings, they cover themselves. They use their wings to cover themselves. Angels knew what it was to cover. Angels also knew what happens when transgression is made from God's created order. How did Satan become Satan? He's a fallen angel. He tried to transgress the boundaries in God's created order because of the angels. It could also just mean messengers like actual spies uh, who were either from the Jewish people or for the Roman Empire trying to cast shade on the church or get any dirt that they could get to discredit the church. That's another way of interpreting it as well. But I believe it's talking about angelic beings. Now, just in case... Men would be reading what Paul is writing about. Men being created first and women being created for men. And just in case men weren't starting some sort of Christian chauvinism to think that they're somehow superior to women, 
Paul communicates very clearly in verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man, nor man of a woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of women and all things are from God. Paul highlights in talking about creation, the order of creation, but also the interdependence that you, you can't have men unless you have women. And yes, it's true that a woman was created from a man initially, but every man since then has come from a woman. And so Paul highlights the interdependence, the complementarity between man and women. So he uses a transcultural explanation. He takes them back to Eden. There's no, there was no culture. No one felt like an outsider in Eden. There was only two of them. And that set the tone for it is before the fall. There was no misunderstanding. There was no sin. Paul takes them all the way back there. He, it's transcultural. It's universally applied that men and women are different. And that, that men and women have been created in a particular order. And that men and women have a certain interdependence upon one another. And then Paul says, I am applying this transcultural principle to a cultural expression of head coverings. And then he has one more line of thinking that he wants to express in verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it not proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you? Here's the third and final point. Paul communicates from the perspective of nature, just the way the world works. Look at a male duck and look at a female duck. Look at a male lion and look at a lioness. Look at a peacock and it's, they're not, females aren't called peacocks. It's, peacock is just a name for a male of another bird. But whatever, whatever, it's, whatever the analogy, that men and women look, male and female across the species, across nature, look different. Nature itself teaches us that. Paul says in verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? If her head uncovered dishonors her husband, is it right for her to pray to God in church like that? Is she truly honoring God with her prayer while simultaneously she's dishonoring her husband? Paul's going to get into this as well. The vertical relationship and the horizontal. In the next few verses that Lord willing will get to next week when he talks about the Lord's Supper, Paul says, don't say that your communion service honors God when you're dishonoring the poor. You've got to get the vertical relationship right, but you also got to get the horizontal right. Don't say that you're praying to God with your head out. You can't simultaneously dishonor those in our horizontal relationships, human to human, and somehow say we're okay with God on our vertical relationship. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor. It's not just one way. It has to be both ways. So Paul says in verse 14, does not nature itself teach us that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Again, notice how different men and women are. Long hair for a man, disgrace, shameful. Long hair for a woman, glory. It's the same hair. But when you apply it to a man, it's disgraceful, it's shameful. But when you apply it to a woman, it's, it's glory. Men and women are different. And so there are different ways of culturally expressing that. Now Paul says, doesn't nature itself, what is nature itself saying? 
Is nature itself saying that it's wrong for men to have long hair? I mean, Paul knew the story of Samson, Samson with his long hair. The long hair with Samson, that was the only, really the only thing Samson obeyed God about in his whole life. He disobeyed every other command that God gave him, but he was faithful to the vow that his parents had to make in number six. He was a Nazarite who was supposed to separate himself to the Lord. He shall, se- he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall let the locks of his hair, of his head grow long. He shall not go near a dead body. Even the apostle Paul got his hair cut after he finished a period of time where he had a vow. Paul at one point had longer hair. He's not saying that it's inherently sinful for women to have short hair. He's not saying that it's inherently sinful for men to have long hair. What he's saying is that there's something wrong when a man is portraying themselves in a way that's, that it's, would be culturally acceptable or expected for a woman to express themselves. And it's wrong for a woman to project or to express herself in a way where culturally the expectation would be that that is how a man is supposed to appear Men are different. Men should dress like men. Women are different. Women should dress like women. Doesn't mean that long hair is wrong for a man. It doesn't mean that short hair is wrong for a woman. Well, you might be, well, in Paul's day, if all the men had their hair cut short, maybe, maybe we should all cut our hair short. I'm, that's fine with me. I'm, my hair is short by default. But yeah, men might have had short hair in Paul's day. Men also didn't wear pants in Paul's day. Everybody wearing pants today? Men and women, in terms of their clothing, very similar. Open robes, long flowing robes. The only difference was what they wore on their heads. Is it it wrong for a man in, in some situation or some culture not to wear pants? I stood up in my friend's wedding a number of years ago. We all wore kilts. It's a little bit awkward, but we did it. He was Scottish. It was part of his heritage. It was part of his culture. So I wore a kilt. Only a handful of people have seen the pictures. How we express masculinity and femininity depends on culture. It changes throughout generation. It changes in terms of geography. For some cultures, the way to express masculinity and femininity looks exactly like 1 Corinthians 11 where women are veiled, where women do have a covering. It's, 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 it's just, you insert here and fit, it fits right in here. In our culture, it doesn't work that way. We're, furthermore, we are living in a world in which there is an intentional blurring of the boundaries, not just between how does a man dress and how does a woman dress, But there's an intentional blurring of the boundaries. So that's happening. But on top of that, there is a blurring of the boundaries between what is a man and what is a woman. It's in all of our news feeds. It's in our children's classrooms. I don't know what it has anything to do with selling cookies or gasoline or hotel rooms, but it's in every commercial. We are being inundated with this message, this this confusion. So gender equality does not mean gender interchangeability. The Bible tells us again and again, it's so clear, men and women are different. A covered head or an uncovered head? Well, it depends on if it's a man or a woman. Long hair or short hair? Well, it depends if it's a man or a woman. Where our world is saying it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman. What is a man? What is a woman? Let's redefine what that is. Now, all of that is happening in our culture. At the same time, there are particularly young people 
who at different times may struggle with something called gender dysphoria, where they feel a disconnection between their physical body, their maleness or their femaleness, and the kind of things that they like to do, the kind of people they like to spend time with, the kind of activities they want to engage in, the, the way they want to. So there's a, some people feel that disconnect. It's called gender dysphoria. And there's a very compassionate and a very clear way to deal with that. Now, the world has a way of dealing with that. But the church needs to understand that we don't, we don't ridicule or mock or dismiss. We don't lump all of those people into what's happening in the world. We need to be very careful in how we address those things. If you are looking for a resource to help with this, because believe me, if it hasn't come into your own home or if, or if, if it hasn't come into your own life, it will at some point. I highly recommend this book that our elders went, to, went through a number of years ago by Andrew Walker called God and the Transgender Debate which uses biblical foundations and scientific evidence to address how do we talk to people about the differences between men and women? How do we talk to people about these feelings, these legitimate feelings that people have and, and how do we help them? Our church has taken steps to try to be as clear as possible because we believe that the truth is, is most loving. And so on our website, we have a statement about marriage and sexuality. I won't read the whole thing. I'll just read the first two lines. We believe a person's biological sex accords with his or her gender identity as male and female, which God, our creator, designed at conception and gave as a gift to be embraced with gratitude and worship. Now, it may be harder for some than it is for others. It may be something that someone struggles with in their youth. It may be something that they struggle with all of their life. But our maleness or our femaleness is something that is to be received by God with gratitude and with worship. But our world is telling a totally different story. Paul says in verse 15, but... If a woman has long hair, is it her glory? Then he says, for her hair is given to her for a covering. This is why some people believe, he's not talking about a veil, he's talking about hairstyle. Again, he's talking about this, the, the women have their hair as a covering, therefore, use whatever cultural symbols communicate that women have been given this special distinction. He's not saying that women always have to have their hair Long. He's not saying that women always have to have their head covered by a veil or by whatever. That depends on the culture, but women are distinct. The thing that is shameful for a man is glorious for a woman. And he says in verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul says, get in line, Corinth. You guys think you can make up your own rules? You think that you're super spiritual or whatever? Listen, men and women are different and we need to celebrate that and we need to communicate that with whatever cultural symbols are appropriate. I love how Andrew Wilson sums up this challenging text. He says, Paul's teaching on head coverings is intended to preserve appropriate distinctions between the sexes so that men look like men and women look like women and to avoid sexually provocative or maritally inappropriate appearance in gathered worship. That's what Paul's getting at here. And what that looks like in our context may be different than what it did in the church at Corinth. It might look different overseas. So here's, here's sort of a summary of everything we've covered so far in one slide. The principle is that men and women are different. 
and that there's such a thing as male headship in marriage. The foundation for that is the Trinity, the incarnate son and how he relates to the father. Creation, Adam and Eve, nature itself, and then the cultural expression of that principle based on that foundation are head coverings and hair length. So loved ones, the first two things, the principle and the foundation, those are eternal. Those things will never change. Those things are not cultural. Those things will always remain the same. The cultural expression will change according to geography, according to history, according to culture. And so we need the the Spirit's wisdom, especially in our day and age where there's so much confusion. We need wisdom to say, this is what it means to be male. This is what it means to appear male. This is what it means to be female. This is what it means to appear female. This is what marriage is. And these are the symbols that are involved to communicate to the world that I belong to this person in a covenant relationship and I belong to Christ. It's a full out surrender of all that we are, all the the way that we dress, the way that we act, the way that we express ourselves, all must come in submission to the lordship and headship of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to come to you right now living in a very confused age, living with our own personal struggles, living with our own personal preferences of how we feel comfortable wearing a certain kind of clothing or or not wearing a certain kind of clothing, with our own sense of creativity or joy and wearing something unique. Lord, we want to submit all of those things to you. We, we want to use, have our words and have our actions, even to have our clothing bring honor and glory to you. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us as a church, as individuals and as a group, as, 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 as married partners, as parents with children, as singles, and uh, interact with, that there would be a sense of honor and a sense of mutual love and respect for one another and ultimately for you, God, because you are our head. And we pray these things in the name of your glorious son, Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate example in submission and who is our ultimate head. Lord, we love you and thank you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.